0: Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Laurie Parsons, author of Carbon Colonialism, How Rich Countries Export Climate Breakdown, published this year by Manchester University Press. Dr. Parsons, welcome to the show. Hello, great to be here. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Yes,
1: thanks very much. So I am an academic based in London at Royal Holloway University of London. But my story of writing this book really goes back a long, a lot longer than that. Uh, this is a book which brings together learnings and stories and findings from back through 15 years of work. Uh, particularly but not exclusively in Cambodia, where I've spent many years living and working on and off since about 2008. And since that time in 2008, when I first began to look at environment migration linkages and the way that the environment was linked to labour conditions, I've been fascinated by the intersection of the global economy and the environmental pressures that workers face, especially in the global south. With a country like Cambodia, which is a very export-oriented kind of country, you really get a sense of how important the global factory as a, as a repository for the goods made by these kind of countries is to the economy and society of the people. Many of countries like Cambodia, which is by no means unique, it's actually extremely typical in many ways. Um, countries like Cambodia are set up with this exporting role in this global system of production at the center of everything. And so when you begin to look at these environmental issues that we discuss in the book and which are so much on people's minds today as climate change really comes to the forefront of the news and policy agendas, it's impossible when you're in the field and talking to people and kind of living these realities not to understand that intersection of the global factory, the global productive relations and those environmental pressures and yet it's not really in my view enough of the, uh, of the global conversation. So what this book is set up to do and what my work has done over the last 15 years is really to, to centre those issues as a kind of single nexus of inquiry. The idea that we are facing climate change, we're also facing economic development and globalisation of our lives and these two things are mutually entangled processes and that's really the the theme that i'm bringing out in the book and i hope it helps to develop from.
0: any all right so to you know get the basics out of the way what is carbon colonialism
1: right yes a uh, very good question so carbon colonialism is a, a phrase that's been used with increasing regularity in recent years it's uh, one which has come up in various contexts. For example, one of the most common contexts in recent years has been the practice of carbon offsets. That's where uh, a company that produces a lot of uh, carbon dioxide emissions purchases or purchases credits in uh, an area of carbon negative land, for example, a forest uh, concession. And so in that area, they essentially purchase the carbon negativity of a certain amount of trees, for example, and then use that to offset against the excess carbon that they produce uh, in their in their factories. And that supposedly creates a kind of carbon neutrality. It's an increasing uh, practice. It's become very profitable in recent years, and that's been called carbon colonialism. It's uh, of course refers to the fact that you're taking up land most prominently in the global south uh, in order to pay for the excess carbon emissions of predominantly global northern industries or global southern industries which are producing for the global north. Now this is a very interesting and important area of work and uh, something as I said that the term carbon colonialism" is applied to. This by no means the only way that that phrase has been deployed so it's also been applied to offsets. So offsets are one of the ways in which uh, this phrase has been deployed but it's also been used in other ways for example carbon outsourcing which is where um, The very common practice in the global economy today, which is to produce goods for another country, is essentially used as a way to get carbon off the books of a given nation, uh, particularly wealthier nations like the UK or indeed the US. So that's uh, simply where you have a good that you need, like a t-shirt or, um, for example, an electronic device, and it gets made overseas, as most things these days are in many countries. Uh, And then the carbon associated with that device or that good um, stays in the country of its production rather than moving to the the country where that good is ultimately used so that's called carbon outsourcing it's one of uh the key ways in which carbon gets kind of distributed around the global economy if some would say unfairly and that's been called uh, carbon colonialism as well and then of course you'd have uh other ways such as the carbon capture and storage which is the kind of a uh, which is simply the idea that you can suck the carbon out of the air and kind of post hoc deal with the amount of uh, excess carbon around on the planet. This has been called carbon colonialism purely for the fact that it legitimates the idea of the kind of carbon relations that we are embedded in. And that this, in fact, forces us not to confront the system which has evolved around the production of these gases, but rather uh, legitimates and allows it to persist. There's all kinds of other ways in which it's been used, have been used domestically, for example, the ways of urban sustainability have used large tracts of rural land in order to, uh, to facilitate uh, the carbon cost of, uh, of, uh, of very high carbon-intensive industry in urban areas. It's also been used to describe the way in which Sweden crackdowns, that's and burn agriculture, which is very traditional and in, in some lines quite sustainable in parts of the Amazon, for example. The ways in which a lot of carbon... Legislation has been used to crack down on those traditional communities rather than um, being used to tackle bigger industries. It's also been used not just in relation to carbon, but also pollution. There's a very good book called Pollution is uh, Colonialism Last Year by Max de Boiron, who highlighted the way in which um pollution thresholds, for example, thresholds of the acceptable amount of plastic in a river or being ejected into the sea or in a particular area of water. This, she says, is... Uh, is colonial in the sense that it is uh, something that legitimates pollution, even if the uh, local communities might not agree that that is something that is acceptable. For example, it's a, a legitimate level of pollution, even if you can pick it out of the gills of fish. So we've got six examples, amongst others really, of the ways in which this term carbon colonialism has been used in recent years. So one of the things that this book tries to do is to bring all of those together and say, these are not separate processes. These are not disconnected, uh, discrete ways of looking at these problems. They're not separate problems. Actually, what we're looking at here is an increasing awareness of the ways in which our global economy has ultimately led us to this point, the relations of production around the world, which structure environmental degradation and environmental risks. So this book is really an attempt to bring all of that together. Uh, and make sense of these various uh, historical and economic inequalities which shape uh, the distribution of environmental risk around the world
0: today. Okay. And given that kind of you know big picture structural uh, viewpoint that you've got going on here, I imagine our listeners probably have an idea where you're going to come down on this uh, common question of whether individual consumer behavior is an important. Strategy for dealing with climate change and other big environmental problems.
1: Yeah, well, that's a very important point that you raise. It's really important, and um, especially because it's where so many people who have genuinely uh, laudable and active attitudes towards dealing with environmental problems place their efforts. They uh, they direct the majority of their efforts towards this idea of uh, of uh, tackling. Uh, environmental breakdown through sustainable consumption and actually the reason for that is that it's the dominant paradigm in our society today what do we do about environmental breakdown what do we do about climate change we have to consume our way out of it if we all just do that little bit more if we all just think that little bit more carefully when we come to fill our shopping baskets the idea is that we can ultimately address these crises as shape our world today. And despite its dominance and despite my genuine reasons to completely uh, torpedo this idea because so much effort by good people goes into it, I really think ultimately this is a red herring which does a lot more harm than good. This is of course a controversial thing to say because there are many hugely environmentally conscious and uh, and concerned people who absolutely hold up sustainable consumption as uh, vital to our, our, climate, uh, our climate efforts. Nonetheless, the key thing that makes me ultimately skeptical of the power of consumers to tackle the issues that we face in our climate, our global economy of climate breakdown, is the lack of visibility that consumers ultimately have over the origins of the products that they consume. We live today in a world in which Green credentials, green claims, sustainability claims are not just common, they're absolutely ubiquitous. You barely buy a product which doesn't make some kind of claim about its sustainable credentials. So in the first instance, you have a kind of retail-level difficulty in actually differentiating between, you know, what is a genuine green claim, what what is something which is just paying lip service. And because of that difference in differentiating, Ultimately, there's very little economic incentive for most companies to make genuine efforts to really kind of tackle the roots of the environmental problems shaped by the production of their products. It's equally profitable to just look like you're doing uh, you're doing something about your your environmental impact. And often, the classic one of the classic ways in which this is done in terms of greenwashing practice is is the most basic way imaginable. It literally means just colouring your product green. You put a few flowers in the background. The clever thing about this is that now, of course, you have a good deal of uh, environmental legislation, much more than when greenwashing first emerged in the 1960s. Um, And you also have green lobbies who will take uh, take on companies which have made obviously incorrect claims. So actually sort of alluding to environmental sustainability is one of the most profitable ways that companies can, uh, can get the kind of green dollar out of consumers without actually having to really do very much at all. So, you have this huge issue just on the most basic kind of uh, kind of uh, upfront level as a consumer, really genuinely distinguish between uh, products that are truly attempting to decarbonize. For example, their a chain, and those which are just saying they're doing a little bit about it they kind of claiming one percent reduction in one part now that's hard enough but you could say okay so maybe we can get really good consumer guards, we can get really good kind of uh accreditations and you know consumers can just do that a little bit more to research everything they buy okay and this is a lot of those are something that a lot of people say and that's fair enough then the problem is that only surface level problem consumers encounter On all serious or fundamental to the problem of sustainable consumption is the issue of being able to understand what genuinely goes on in that supply chain. And the reason that's more fundamental is because often even companies themselves don't know it. We're used to seeing this idea of a supply chain as this clean, simple diagram. It has certain stages of production and transport. And each of those stages complies with certain uh, regulations which are put in place by uh, the lead But in practice, and it's the practice that I deal with because I spend so long in one of these produced countries, in Cambodia in particular, but also places like Bangladesh, for example. In practice, production just doesn't look like that. It's not this kind of clean, green, Western standard, uh, modern, decarbonizing system. In reality, these factories are owned by the brand. The brand takes minimal responsibility for them. They simply partner factories, which means that the brand will give them a list of things to comply with. They'll be very, very infrequently inspected. If are inspected at all, the factory says they're doing these things. In reality, it's a question of don't ask, don't tell a lot of the time. When you consider that this isn't just a question of one factory in one country, but a whole supply chain that stretches across multiple countries, often multiple continents, before that good finally gets to you. The capacity to have a genuine, meaningful oversight, that means on-the-ground oversight, someone that actually looking at what is going on while these things are being made, that's incredibly difficult to achieve. It's really something that is uh, beyond the capacity of any consumer, beyond even the capacity of of most researchers. So this vast well of uncertainty around production, which is very rarely acknowledged, is one of the key reasons that, fundamentally undermines sustainable consumption in its current guise and then the problem is that this uncertainty is not really a problem for brand really a problem for the producers of goods and facts it's the opposite it's extremely lucrative it's a lot better if there's this kind of black hole around production because ultimately harder to find these kind of issues if everybody's dealing with sort of Back hole, if everybody's got a certain mutual culpability in this kind of very complicated global factory. Uh, and to give you an example of this, uh, the uh, the uh, uh, garment industry uh, dealt with a kind of scandal which arose around four years ago in Xinjiang around the use of uh, forced labor in the production of cotton in China, which, which is the world's biggest cotton producer. As a result of that scandal, many brands declared uh, an willingness or a desire to divest from Xinjiang and cotton. But nevertheless, a few years later, most of them had simply abandoned those budgets. And as, as the designer kind of McCartney said, for example, it's almost impossible to genuinely divest because these supply chains are so opaque, they're so complex, they're so long. You simply don't know where everything has come from. A lot of countries, especially like China, they become something like a black box. It's very difficult to look into, even if you want to. And so faced with this hugely complex, use the obscure global economy. My view is that consumers simply don't have the information at the moment to make genuine ethical purchases, that their efforts really are better spent
0: elsewhere. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, so your analysis here, you know, you're making this sort of global analysis, but you've also got it grounded in the Cambodian case study that you mentioned earlier. So could you talk a little bit about um, what you were researching in Cambodia and how that illustrates some of the ideas that you've talked about in your last couple uh, answers here?
1: Yeah, so i worked in most industries, most of the sectors in Cambodia, um, in particular bricks and construction and garments. So Cambodia is a a, a typical, what's known as a cut-make, trim country within the global economy. That means that it's an intermediary producer. It doesn't have... Cotton fields. It doesn't produce raw materials. It simply puts them together in factories and then ships them off to the final destination. Um, the UK is one of the biggest uh, consumers of Cambodian goods. The US is also very big in the EU. So Cambodia produces vast volumes of garments and apparel for uh, for international markets, particularly the global north. As I said, US, UK, and the EU being major. And it's very important to the Cambodian economy. There's around uh, 600 or so uh, licensed export factories in Cambodia, and there's about uh, just under a million uh, workers out of a population of only about 16 or so million. So this is hugely important for Cambodian, for the Cambodian economy. Almost all of the brands that produce in Cambodia, because it has, in recent years, had a reputation as an ethical uh, industry tend to make claims around their sustainability, uh, both in human terms and in environmental terms. For example, almost every brand that produces in Cambodian factories, as they do in almost any factory around the world, makes claims around zero deforestation and make claims around uh, decarbonization, not yet zero carbon, yeah. and also zero waste and landfill. So, a lot of the work that I've done in recent years has really been exploring what this really looks like on paper. Uh, what were we, uh, or rather, in practice, what are we actually seeing? What are these factories actually doing? And two examples, you know, in relation to those two claims of zero deforestation and zero waste and landfill, are particularly stark. Of course, what we found uh, in uh, a recent study a couple of years ago was that there is an entire garment dump on the outskirts of Phnom Penh, where the majority of the garment industry in Cambodia is located. Which is specifically and only dedicated to the garment industry. There's a whole waste removal company which has dozens of trucks, all of which are, sl- are only shipping waste, garment waste out of these factories, which are themselves for exports. Almost every one of which uh, the brand uh, producing those those, uh, those goods makes these claims about zero waste to landfill. And you walk through this huge dump, picking up labels by Nike, by Adidas, by. By s by Pull and Bear, Walmart, George, the two, the same. Three. All of these brands, they all have their sustainability claim. They all say no way to landfill, and yet you can literally walk over a landfill picking out their labels from, uh, from the ground. And the fact is, this isn't even the secret, it's not even an open secret. This is, a, this is an area of land, it's huge, uh, it's not got any walls, you can just drive onto it. Um, it's actually closed now to move to a bigger site and give you an idea of. How, how this is being cracked down on um, but this is not a secret to anybody apart from potentially brand head offices probably not in practice but really UK uh, or rather uh, Western consumers final end-stage consumers and people who, are, who don't know about this people in the local community know about it people in the industry know about it it's not a secret and yet that kind of lucrative obscurity allows these things to system being said. So that's the waste side. And then even on the production side, you've got huge broken promises in a very ostentatious way. So, um, of course, zero deforestation is a part of almost every brand's claims about what they, uh, about the conditions in which their goods are made, and rightly so. And particularly in a country like Cambodia, which has suffered huge amounts of deforestation in recent years. Cambodia um, has lost in the first ten years of the new millennium, Cambodia lost about a quarter of all of its primary rainforest cover, which was a huge amount. Um, almost all of that wealth being shipped uh, abroad and being uh, being capitalised on by other countries. But forest wood is also used not just for luxury purposes, but also for productive purposes. And this is something that has been sort of going around the rumour mill for a number of years. I first heard about this idea of garment industry using forest wood back in about. 2013 when a journalist mentioned it to me i didn't know that stage quite understand what it would be used for on what scale i saw a grainy photo of a, uh, of a truck with forestwood going it wasn't for another seven years when i finally started to look into this in depth i found actually the issue that's being addressed here is that electricity is in many parts of the global south, is in cambodia extremely expensive so when Factories need to do something that's energy intensive, particularly ironing, for example, because you've got to boil a lot of water, a lot of energy, um, then it's extremely expensive to just use the grid. Now, at that time, um, the grid actually disavowed factories from using their own solar panels to produce their own energy. There are regulations of slightly nuisance on that, but they're still not great. But at the time, factories couldn't do it without paying that back to the grid, essentially. They're paying... Even all that factory back, and then buying back their own electricity. Um, so what they did, as a way to get around that, was to use huge amounts of uh, of uh, everyday forest wood, stacking up in huge quantities, and use it in burners and boilers in order to produce the steam they needed to uh, to produce to iron the clothes that they were producing. Now this was particularly centered on certain factories, which became large-scale ironing departments. And what we did in, uh, in 2021 was to, uh, to get a Gibraltar to fly over one of these factories and to understand, just get a scale of the size of this, which is almost impossible without seeing pictures. It's thousands and thousands of tons of, uh, of forest wood, uh, which is, of course, illegal to harvest, being kept in a large depository behind this factory, being used in vast quantities every day, huge trucks come um, every day in order to replenish this huge amount of uh, forest wood, which is used to produce, or rather to iron the goods, which are being sent off to uh, to global northern countries, which, of course, carry all of those claims around zero deforestation to so this day. What we found when we look, took this across the entire industry was that, uh, on average, about 30% of factories burn forest wood, across the industry as a whole. That's about uh, 200 factories or so. And 15% or so um, used uh, or burned their own fabric. Again, hugely carbon intensive, uh, which is largely denied by most brands in general. So the reality, this isn't just a few bad apples, it's the reality of production. And again, I absolutely don't want to demonize Cambodia. As I said, in many respects, Cambodia is a very typical Intermediary producer. This is the reality of production in the global south. It's out, right out outside our jurisdiction, and out of minds in many respects. The fact that it's so difficult to get genuine oversight into this really protects grounds from what genuinely goes on in the production
0: process overseas. Yeah, and in addition to the the garment industry, you also looked at brick making, which I found really interesting because that was uh, you know an economic sector that I haven't known much. Uh, about. So, can you say a little bit about brick making and how it connects to uh, carbon colonialism? Yes. So, brick, uh,
1: the brick sector is an area that I've worked in for about the last seven years or so now. Um, it's a fascinating sector because it's very variegated around the world in terms of, you know, the kilns look different, they're all built in different ways, uh, the arrangements often different in the ways that uh, the economy of these kilns works but almost invariably wherever you go it's extremely difficult work it's extremely poorly paid and it's one of the last things that people choose to do if they have any choice at all So it has extremely high levels of debt bondage ubiquitously around the world um, um, and it has extremely high levels of child labor as well which often goes along with that as many families into debt we first got into this industry in uh, Cambodia, uh, which is relatively small in global terms. It's got about uh, a population of about 10,000 people working in brick kilns, and about 400 and just the 500 brick kilns operating currently in the country. And these brick kilns don't export, but they do fuel the vast uh, boom industry. Uh, urban expansion, which has happened in Cambodia in recent years. There's been a huge urban boom, primarily as a result of land speculation and property speculation by external foreign investors, in particular from China, for example, Korea, um, but also by very wealthy domestic investors. We see this as a way to, uh, to, to get reliably rapid returns and also potentially to clean some money, which may not come from the best possible sources. Now, what's really notable about this industry, the dark side of it is that this is just, uh, even compared to you know, a country which has had such a difficult history and in which many people struggle, the brick industry really does stand out for the conditions in which workers work. Um, to all of that 10,000 population that I mentioned, um, around 4,000 are children. Now, not all of them work um, because this is a family organized uh industry as in families tend to go all together and that means many um even if they don't work that four thousand includes babies for example who live in the kilns don't necessarily work. A significant proportion of those four thousand almost certainly do work at least some of the time. However, and we can different evidence of six hundred working. So at least six hundred or six percent of the industry as a whole are child labourers. We believe it's a lot higher than that in terms of the number of children that work some of the time. Of course that's internationally and nationally illegal. It's extremely dangerous work. It's extremely difficult work. But what people what draws people into the industry and what keeps them there is this issue of debt. Debt bondage is hugely prevalent in the brick industry in Cambodia as it is globally. So what happens in, in many cases is the brick workers are former farmers who uh, who find themselves unable to uh, to, to to farm or at least find themselves going into debt as a result of farming. So of course, Cambodia has a huge debt problem in many countries in the global south. Now, partly as a result of changing environmental conditions, which make it very difficult for farmers to uh, to get a return from their investment in their agricultural efforts. And so when they find these farmers that they're unable to keep up with their debt repayments and that people are knocking on the door every day and there's no way to, to declare bankruptcy at default, and almost the equivalent of bankruptcy for many communities in Cambodia is to go into the brick industry. You go to the brick guild owner and you say, "Buy my debt, pay off my debts, I'll work for you until I've paid off those debts. So that's the arrangement. People essentially bond themselves into the brick industry. The problem is the reality of life in the brick industry is almost impossible to make any money to really pay off any debts. So almost invariably those debts increase and then the increase with ever greater regularity and the health impacts of working in the industry mean greater medical bills that have to be funded by further loans from owner in the industry so people get trapped for years and years on end in this industry the vast majority of people debt bonded as i said a significant proportion of them are children The work is extremely difficult and dangerous um is led in a number of cases to workers losing limbs as a result of these machines of talked to um, people under the age of 16. There was one 12-year-old on that who busts an arm in the keel. It's not that uncommon. Um, and it's extremely dangerous, as I say, even for people who don't um, have these kind of catastrophic injuries. The long-term impacts of working uh, with very low wages, poor food, very high levels of energy, Intake, but also in very high temperatures because these kilns are extremely hot. Uh, and it is, of course, one of the hardest countries in the world, anyway, in During the hot season, working in these incredibly high temperatures and uh, you know, in a very hot and humid environment. It's just very bad for your body. And as a result of that, levels of sudden death, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s are very high. So it's a leaf of industry, really, really poor quality of work. And uh, and working on exposing that and attempting to find a different way to produce the bricks to, um, to fuel Cambodia's building boom has been a large part of my work more recently. But One of the things that I've tried to do is to take that internationally, because of course um, it tends to be seen that that industry is just domestic and it's limited to Cambodia, and that's true in one sense, it's not true in a wider sense in the sense that Uh, International companies are investing in the buildings built with these bricks, and we've even traced them directly to these kilns that use bonded and child labour. So that's a certain kind of culpability and a certain kind of responsibility. I'm certainly working to highlight legally. Um, In a more direct sense, you don't have to bring in the financial aspect to consider the uh, the direct impact of of imported bricks to places like here in the UK. So the UK is actually the world's number one importer of bricks around the world. imports about 400 million bricks every year. Um, Of about 30-plus million, those coming from South Asia, uh, in particular, India and Pakistan, the conditions in which those bricks are are not hugely better than the situation in Cambodia. And again, this has been documented. You've got child labor, you've got funded labor, Difficult and dangerous conditions And there are all kinds of horrors Associated with the South Asian brick industry Which is far, far larger than, than 800,000 fields Millions of workers All kinds of horrors For example, the, uh, the, um, the way in which uh, The traditional system of, of producing the, the stacks of bricks, the ricks Is to, uh, to cover them in sand On the top Which keeps the heat in But also allows what's known as a fireman To walk along the top and to continue to uh, to stoke the flames from above. Now, that fireman is completely dependent on that rick, not collapse. If that rick collapses, then they're instantly falling into 1500 degree heat, and they're, uh, they're dead in an instant. And of course, naturally, you want the lightest person to do it. I not mean, younger people, often means children doing that job. So, hugely difficult industry. And a significant proportion now, millions of bricks being imported from this industry directly to very wealthy countries like the UK. Now, this isn't something that consumers know about. And again, it goes back to my earlier point. It's not something that consumers know about, and it's not something that they're supposed to know about. And, of course, if you label the bricks that you're buying in the UK as, you know, uh, Dakar best, then people might have questions about this. They might not be that keen on buying them, but they don't label them that. They give them nostalgic English names like Manchester Blue, Suffolk, Multi uh, Imperial Red, for example, to kind of evoke British brick production. And in reality, they're coming from uh, South Asia in very poor production in many cases. One of the many ways in which these kind of great abuses in our global economy uh, are ultimately hidden from consumers. It's very difficult to see the impact of the products that we buy.
0: Yeah, so then I think that leads to the obvious next question, which is if we can't. Consume our way out of carbon colonialism. Where should we be putting our efforts and our energy? Yes, again, a very
1: important question. Um, well, the simple answer, the, the I mean, that's is It's not as easy as consuming away. There's not a product that we can buy. There's not a kind of button press to make uh, these problems go away. But solution, that is it is messy, or perhaps a little fashionable is nonetheless extremely necessary. And we piggyback back on the fact that the first green shoots of change are beginning to emerge. So one of the reasons that the kind of examples that I've given are so prevalent around the world today is that supply chains have been allowed to exist in an almost completely ungoverned way. Um, If we think about the example of the UK uh, and carbon emissions, for example, uh, you have what's known as Scope 1, Scope 2 and Scope 3 emissions. So Scope 1 emissions are the emissions that your own factory For example, or your own business produces. Scope 2 are indirect emissions, for example, from power generation. Scope 3 is what happens outside of borders. That's your international supply chain. Scope 1 and 2 emissions are covered by laws. Scope 3 emissions are entirely voluntary. And that's absolutely common, if not ubiquitous around the world, or at least it has been until very, very recently. So the fact is, if you're a company, you're very aware of the fact that you're not covered by binding legislation. In your international supply chain, and that has contributed to, to a very great extent, the situation that we see today. That, until very recently, has been the case. However, um, just as of the last few years, we've seen the emergence of the first supply chain laws. So, one of the first to emerge was that in France. The French supply chain law was heralded as being, well, it's kind of in reality, it's a little bit like the modern slavery act in the UK, and that. It, has a got a fanfare associated with it, but very few teeth, very few kind of mechanisms to actually uh, check what's happening uh, beyond declarations of companies themselves and very few uh, clear legal avenues for address companies bound to break their own promises or break standards that have been set. But a far better and more forcing law has emerged in Germany in recent years, German supply chain law. Now this actually gives any community around the world Affected by a company that trades in Germany or is based in Germany, anywhere in their supply chain, the power to challenge that company in German court is a game changer in terms of the actual ability of communities to meaningfully fight back against these of environmental and human abuses in global supply chains. It's hugely important and it's only just beginning, but the trajectory. Is vital, and this is something to give people hope. If we think about twenty twenty, number of international uh, supply chain based cases brought in courts worldwide was only thirty eight. Twenty twenty one, that number was one hundred and ninety three. Five times the number of cases increase in uh, in just a year. And that trajectory, will hope and expect, will continue to increase. Now, why is this important from an individual point of view? Because it, sh- it makes tangible what previously simply been seen as out of jurisdiction, out of the uh, scope of what an, a national government can do. But now we have evidence that every national government can begin to regulate the supply chains meaningfully, and that we can go a lot further even than that German supply chain, but and that we make tangible change through politics and through law. And so, what i call on people to do is to I suppose, put down the ethical consumer guide, at least for the moment, and instead to turn towards politics, towards local politics, and to getting engaged in lobbying for better oversight of supply chains around the world. This is something that people in the global north, many of whom will be uh, the listeners to this, but um, have the luxury of being able to call upon. It's a huge privilege to be living in a society which have meaningful local political avenues and which extend into national politics. We have the means, even though it's not just something that one person can do, we have the means as a community to work towards improvement in our legislative systems, to demand it as, uh, as a society. And so what I suggest is to, to, yes, to, to put down the ethical consumer guide and pick up the phone to convince people you know and people that uh, that they know in order to build a genuine route towards supply chain regulation towards meaningful oversight of these huge global economies which we all depend it's very early days it's exciting times because the first green shoots have appeared and there is for the first time in a long time like the end of the the carbon colonialism
0: tunnel all right well, i think that's a, a good hopeful note uh, on which to start moving towards the end of our interview here. So first, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout-out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book. Well, um, a huge number of people, too many to name really, as I say, this covers about 15 years
1: of work, but one of of this has been the person that I've worked with in Cambodia in particular, Lee buch Long, is an ever-present partner in all of these investigations and who is Without a few without whose expertise, none of this would have been in any anyway. But more broadly, of course, to the hundreds and hundreds of Cambodian people who have worked over the years and have been so generous with their time and who have put faith in me to use that information to try to highlight some of the problems that they've raised. And I hope that this book will go some way towards doing that. Hopefully, we can begin to achieve something tangible in return
0: for those hugely valuable collaborations okay and our traditional final question uh is what are you working on next well
1: primarily one of the issues that i mentioned uh just in passing in the course of our conversation was the issue of heat. the fact that these brick workers uh, spend uh such prolonged periods in in extremely high temperatures both environmentally and in terms of their their local industrial conditions that's not unique to the brick industry it's actually something that is um is hugely prevalent in all kinds of lower paid work. And under climate change, one of the things that tends not to be fully appreciated is the extent to which heat stress impacts are so fully structured by the inequalities of our global economy. Um, when we think about what happens in a heat wave, when we think about what happens when the mercury reaches over 40 degrees, as it did in London, to absolutely horror of the majority of the country was at uh, a bizarre moment you know london never approaching anything like that um in the past when these kind of things happen it's not wealthy people in a given society that suffer and that's especially true in the global south um it is a finely structured environmental pressure and understanding how those kind of economic inequalities leave some people far more exposed than others to the rigors of extreme heat is is I think an extremely one key question in terms of human populations under climate change uh, on the horizon. So understanding that is the work I'm doing right now, and understanding how the worst off in our society are those to have the kind of strongest blowers of the the newly strengthened
0: climate is I think a key key question for our era, and one I'm very interested in right now. All right. Well, that sounds really interesting. And maybe we'll have you back on to talk about that if that uh, leads to another book. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for a great conversation. This has been a conversation with Laurie Parsons, author of Carbon Colonialism, How Rich Countries Export Climate Breakdown, published this year by Manchester University Press.